Hi there, Dave Levine here. Thanks for joining me again on this week's Sports Stories podcast. Today is episode number 18 and our special guest is Kevin Bowring. Last week, we spoke with John Stanworth, who now works with the England Women's Cricket Department. Well, today we switch sports and countries. Kevin has had an amazing career working in education and rugby union. He's been heavily involved with both the English Rugby Union and the Welsh Rugby Union, making a significant impact on the sport. Having known and worked with Kevin over the years, I'm really excited about hearing more of his stories and allowing him to share some of his great expertise and wisdom in his very authentic, humble and natural way. So let's get on with the podcast and let me welcome today's special guest, former Welsh head coach and RFU head of elite coach development, Mr. Kevin Bowring. Kevin, welcome to the Sports Stories podcast. It's uh, a real privilege of mine to have you on the show today. I've really been looking forward to engaging with you, hearing your story. I'm not quite sure where it'll go because uh, I'm kind of amazed by the depth and the length and the insights that I'm sure you will have. So we'll go where we go. What I tend to do is invite my guests to tell a little bit around who they are, what they've done. I'm sure many of the people are listening might know a little bit about your story, but can I start off by asking you just to share a little bit about your first memories of sport and, uh, and then we'll go into your career right through to you being the Wales coach and, and being an internationally recognised developer of people. So Kevin, a little bit about your first memories of sport and then we'll go from there. I, I think you're saying I'm a, a bit of an old gip really. <laughs> That's a long time ago, that first memory. You know? Well, it's, it's a good start. <laughs> um, gosh, I think it's, do you know those summer evenings where your mother called you in from playing out in the street uh, and said, you know, call me, came to the front door because we could play out in the street in those days. And she'd say, come on, uh, uh, coming in, you know, you've got to come in now. But mum, it's it's still light, but it's half past nine, quarter to ten at night, and we are still playing cricket because it was summer. Uh, it, it's still light. We are still playing cricket uh, in the street. So I was born in a, a terraced house in, in uh, Penadria, uh, a street in, in Neath in South Wales. Um, uh, across the street, my grandparents lived in another terrace house and their garden backed onto the Neath Canal where, would you believe, we learned to swim in the, in the, the lock of a canal in those days. It was clean enough in those days. But of course we played, we played games, we played street games. So the uh, pavement was the crease and we bowled, chalked the wickets on the wall. Uh, we played football, rugby, cricket, all sorts of games there. And, and as it's those memories of play, really, all sorts of games. Uh, we were fortunate also that um, about five doors down from our house, there was uh, the chapel where I went to for Sunday school. And I, 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 I went to the chapel until I was about 16. And behind the chapel, there was a, a, almost a triangular-shaped um, playground with a roundabout, a slide, and some bars, and uh, a, a rocking horse. But it was triangular, and we played. We, this was a great space to play, but of course you had to avoid all the, the roundabout and all the obstacles, as well as each other playing our, um, our touch rugby or, or whatever games we played. And, and the typical kids, I, I think I might have been one of the younger boys. So it was cross-age group. Mm -hmm. 
Um, often there were odd numbers, so we may, if it was seven of us, we'd, you know, we'd have three guys um, attacking the wide end, the wide end of, of the playground, and the four guys attacking the narrow end, because that was fairer, wasn't it? <laughs> and also we, we self-organized the games, we self-managed them and refereed them. That was until we had a chap from Rosser Street just up the road come and play. He was a couple of years older than us, and he wanted a referee all the time. And his <laughs> name was Clive Norling. And he became one of the world's best rugby referees in the 1980s. He really refereed uh, internationally, Six Nations, Five Nations, Six Nations, uh, World Cups, uh, and started his referee career with in, you. Uh, <laughs> our playground in you. So uh, I mean, great, great memories. And I, I should add that uh, our terrace street, um, almost the parallel street further beyond, was Knoll Park Road where the Knoll Rugby Ground was. That's the home of Neath Rugby Club. And in those days, of course, as a, as a young kid, you, you watched Neath and uh, your heroes, your role models played for, for Neath there. And uh, your dreams of wanting to play for Neath and Wales and beyond uh, all emanated from those those street games really. Is that, is that why you went towards rugby as opposed to cricket and the other sports? Uh, yeah, the area uh, in South Wales uh, was rugby mad, of course. I, I went to Neath Grammar School and Neath Grammar School was renowned for uh, success at schoolboy rugby. Uh, my sixth form year uh, we had six Welsh secondary schoolboy internationals from one team in one year. So a third or a half of the Welsh under-18 schoolboy team from one school. And sadly, I wasn't one of those. So my dream of playing for Wales, you know, didn't, uh, didn't materialise. Uh, you were in good company there, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, most, uh, most Welsh people... Uh, uh, they, they say that they're Welsh secondary schoolboys, you know, they played for Welsh secondary schoolboys. Everybody in Wales is a Welsh secondary schoolboy, except me. So it was, it was um, rugby was the passion. Cricket in the summer uh, and, and uh, rugby in the, in the winter. My mother washing cricket whites one week, uh, rugby kit the next week. And were you better at rugby than cricket, obviously? Uh, in the end, I had to choose. Uh, I played a lot of cricket, I played sort of county schools under 18 uh, cricket, but um, rugby season starts to get longer and longer, pre-season tours, end of seasons, seven aside tournaments. And so in the end, you, you know, you chose uh, the game I loved in the end. And so where did you go with that then? So you kind of came through school, you played the various different sports, then you had to choose a kind of a direction when you went from school. How did your, your career unfold from there? What was interesting, my father was a carpenter and he was the, a carpenter, the maintenance carpenter in the, the, the big factory, in the, the metal box factory. And um, he used to do little um, weekend jobs for the managers of the factory. Uh, building a wardrobe or a kitchen or, or for them for a bit of extra pocket money or what have you. 
And he always said, look, you've got to get into the management side of business, of industry. So I suppose I was influenced by that. didn't know what I wanted to do, really. But I started uh, doing a degree in business studies, would you believe? <laughs> and uh, really hating it. <laughs> Stuck it for a couple of years. And in between, I was coming home from um, uh, Polytechnic in those days, it was. And I was um, playing cricket in the summer uh, back in, in, in Neath. And uh, a friend of mine who had um, gone off to university had come back and said, well, if you don't like it, why don't you reapply and, and become a PE teacher? Well, I was playing cricket. I was playing rugby. I had even started, I must have been, what, eight, 19? Just over 19. And I was even started coaching the uh, the village under 18 youth team uh, at that time as well and so i thought well well i might give it a go i'm not really happy doing this business studies sitting behind a desk for the rest of my life i couldn't imagine <laughs> that um i applied late to a phys ed college borough road college in in london i knew a couple of lawyers from Heath grammar school who had been up there mainly an athletics college it was uh with Alan Pascoe, Alan Lowell had taught there. Uh, Jimmy Biddle was the head of PE, was the Great Britain athletics team manager at the time. I'm talking early 70s. And uh, I, uh, I, I applied, I got interviewed about the last week of August, started in mid-September, and I had four fantastic years uh, at the college as a training to be a PE teacher, got a degree in, in teaching, um, played rugby there, uh, very influenced by uh, a, a mad Irishman lecturer, Johnny Hunter, who I learned about the passion, the enthusiasm, the love of the game that he instilled. He inspired that love of the game with the with me really and and he is still a, a lifelong friend actually gosh just gosh. so that was your introduction to to being a PE teacher then how long were you a teacher for I taught in all about 17 years wow so I taught um middle school age secondary school age and then uh, I taught at a university. I lectured for, for two or three years as well before um, working for the RFU in elite coach development. But my teaching, I mean, teaching PE and teaching rugby, of course, was uh, great, great fun. Introducing the game to um, under nine year olds and trying to capture the magic of, of our game uh, and enthuse players to to enjoy the game, uh, right up, I suppose, then to uh, coaching and, and coaching internationally. Yeah. And so, coach all levels of the game, really. Yeah. And Kevin, what's really st struck me is over the past three or four months, I've been speaking to a number of coaches who have come through a route of education into coaching. And can I ask you the question, what is it that we take from the education world that's really helped you or did help you within the world of coaching? I appreciate they're similar, but there's something about people coming through the teaching avenue that's really added to their coaching. I suppose it's the concept of people development. 
it's about helping, inspiring, encouraging, stimulating people to, to learn, develop, to be the best versions of themselves, whether it's on the rugby pitch, on the games field, on, in sport, in music, in drama, in, in life in general. So I think there is a, a drive to help people be the best they possibly can be. Where does that drive come from or where did it come from for you, do you think? Is it something that was just innate or did you pick it up along the way? Well, when later on in life, when we did some personality profiling, I, I was, we, we did insights profiling. You know, uh, lots of other sports may do Myers-Briggs or, or, or what have you. Um, they're, they're based on... Carl Jung's typologies, I think, you know, which is introversion, extroversion, thinking, feeling. And, uh, and I came out as a preference for, in insights uh, language, green, a green energy, green, blue sort of energy. I could access some of the other energies, but my preference would be that, that green values, relationship-driven, understanding of others, supportive of others, which is not surprising when I've been a teacher, a coach, a coach developer uh, all my life. You know, it, it's about nurturing, supporting, developing others. Um, whether that's uh, your life experiences, your uh, influences uh, on you, um, a lot of teachers, uh, are involved in coaching. A lot of successful coaches weren't teachers as well. You know, that's, there's a good balance to it. But if you think of World Cup winning rugby coaches, not all were from a teaching background. Clyde Woodward did and Graham Henry did, but there were others, um, Bob Dwyer and Rod McQueen and uh, Kitch Christie of South Africa. They weren't. They, they were perhaps from, from a business background. Um, but I, I suppose that, that, that drive to help others achieve and be the best they can be is, through, is a form of education, isn't it? It's a form of development. So, Kevin, you, you've had a career through education and in coaching. Can you take us to a place whereby, you, you know, is one of the highlights of your career? And how did that philosophy and that drive and that relationship kind of approach really play out to your advantage? Um, I think it was uh, Dave Whitaker who was the England hockey coach, gold medal winning coach, I think, in 98 Seoul Olympics. I think he was quoted as saying, you owe it to your players to be the best coach you possibly can be. And I think that drive of continuous improvement, that... Um, drive to continually learn you know and as old as I am as much learning that I've taken through a career in sport there's so much more to learn David isn't it mm. you know if you're curious if you're open to learning if you're hungry to learning so I suppose the success story I don't think is necessarily me it's uh, I, I reflected on Seeing someone like Stuart Lancaster uh, start his coaching career in the academy as an academy coach in Leeds 
um, to develop as a, a head coach uh, in the Premiership and the Championship, to come into the England pathway as uh, a head of elite player uh, development, to coach England Saxons, uh, to coach England, to uh, be disappointed with the 2015 World Cup, to bounce back with such success at Leinster. Now that success story comes from that success and disappointments mm -hmm. as we all have in our lives comes from a continuous desire to learn, a hunger to get better. Is it uh, Carol Dweck who talks about a growth mindset? You know that, and Stuart and many of the coaches that I was being fortunate to work with. Um, I, I think have that desire to learn, that that growth mindset, that hunger for learning, that continuous strive for being more effective and, and, uh, and being the best they possibly can be, the best version, and, and that curiosity in looking for things which will add to their coaching armory to make them better and better. And I think that's that's the success story indeed. So what do you do in that place so when you've got these coaches that are around you and you're, you're in charge of their, or in, in charge is a strong word, but you know, in there in support of their development. How, how do you help them when they've got that such a, a thirst for learning? I, I, it's signposting sometimes, isn't it? Right. it it's saying, look, um, it, it's trying to raise awareness of what would make you a better coach? And you know, what do I think? What do you think? Um, let's try and explore that. And um, where can we go for learning? And um, we're, we're signposting people to, uh, uh, to go there, to that course, to, to that environment, to learn from that, to that sport, to, to that coach to uh, that different domain, um, firefighting, military. Um, we even went to magic management at one, one point. <laughs> what, what's that? <laughs> what's magic management? Talk about uh, perception and deception in, in managerial business leadership terms, you know, and influencing terms. And of course, this chap was taking my watch off as he was talking to me by through deception and perception and actually some coaches use that in rugby in yeah. terms of trying to deceive opposition and fool yeah. opposition and, and what have you so uh, you know there's lots of places never ending uh, domains to, le to learn from i think there is a skill in coaches in being able to synthesize some learning from one domain in order to apply it in their coaching environment. Go on, say a bit more about that because I think that makes a lot of sense to me. But I'm just just for those that are listening, what do you really mean? Well, I, I suppose it's the so what question. So, what have you taken from that course, that conference, that that cup of coffee with a, a coach or another sport? Um, what have you learned? So, so what does that mean for you and your coaching in your environment? Not necessarily to implement straight away. Sometimes let the learning wash over you 
and actually there'll be an issue, a problem that will pop up in your coaching in the future. And you'll say, ha ha, I remember that experience. I remember the talking to so and so and so. I remember what they did. I may apply it there. That might help me solve this. So it's synthesizing learning from some domain and being open to that and hungry for that, but having the ability to um, say, so what does it mean for me and my coaching at this moment in this context? And that's quite a skill. Yeah. And, and, and you really raised that question for me, Kevin, about the idea that, you know, we can learn from so many different environments, but that learning is not the same as the environment you're in. And, you know, and so, not copying. so so we can't just copy it. Yeah, we have to translate it. And, and there's something for me also about, you know, the, the lovely world that you've described there, how so many of these other environments, i.e. the business world, could also learn so much from the rugby environment or the teaching environment. But it's not the same, but it's we can take some principles or gems from those environments. And, and that's the that's avoiding the copying. It's what is the principle, the underlying factors I can take and apply in my context. Um, it's not about cloning coaches. I've never believed in cloning coaches, for example. And I know we have competence-based assessment and we have to go through various things like that with coaching qualifications and awards. But I believe in the individuality of the coach. I believe in the uniqueness of the, of the coach. Um, and helping them build that level of awareness, build that level of understanding of what uh, and how they do things, what works for them uh, in order then to perhaps do it better and what can help them do it better and challenge people to continually do it better. What, what advice would we give to somebody in that place, though, who's young and up and coming through their career, you know, and hearing from somebody who, who's seen it from so many different perspectives like yourself? How do we encourage coaches or leaders or managers to be their unique self and drive themselves forward? I think it's being curious, actually, David. I think encouraging curiosity whether the modern generations who can access knowledge on their phone so easily nowadays, whether they're as curious about people as perhaps they could be, um, I, I would challenge them to be uh, a bit more curious. Uh, that, that's, that's, I, I don't think coaches are really ever satisfied. Right. You know, we're always striving for... <laughs> perfect performance and my phrase is how can you get perfection in an imperfect world but we can strive for excellence uh, so striving to be uh, excellent in the moment dealing with the moment making good choices making excellent choices and we all make mistakes that's a part of learning as well but um we need a strive for mastering the skills, mastery, excellence as words rather than perfection for me, which is almost unattainable. And, and how did you do that for you? How did you break that sort of that tension between the striving for perfection and actually mastering your skills? How did you manage yourself through your career to do that? I think when 
when you become national coach, you have to go into the job wanting to change the world, wanting to make a difference, wanting to strive for uh, excellence for those results. The reality is we all get replaced at at some time and therefore uh, add value, leave it better than you found it, and then we have to move on. Of course, those are painful experiences, aren't they? Because, you know, we've all perhaps as coaches had the sack at some time and it is uh, a painful uh, hurtful uh, experience Um, but you don't become a bad coach overnight and when you get the next job and look back at why you felt like that you you realize you've got still a a lot to offer you you can achieve things Um, but we are in that results business how did you manage that you know when you hit those kind of rough rocky times where you're under a lot of pressure maybe lost your job you know how do you recover from that because you know again i'm thinking about people listening in here we're in a world nowadays where there's lots of lows as well as some highs and people have to navigate through those times and i'm just wondering what advice you might give and and it is tough and it's it's that sense of perspective So at the darkest times, the sun will rise tomorrow. Anyway, um, at the happiest times, you know, there's a cloud around the corner probably. Um, So you have to uh, deal with winning and losing in the same way. You know, one of the toughest things about being a national coach is the media, uh, the media scrutiny. uh, and, And scrutiny can be debilitating for a coach and under uh, massive media scrutiny where sometimes it's only the result that that matters and we understand that Uh, but the media criticism that goes with a job that you cope with as a coach is tough to coach for your family for your kids in school uh, uh, for your wife or, or for your parents did you experience that, Kevin, quite a lot? My mother in Tesco's, or should I say Tesco's, in the supermarket <laughs> in Neath, uh, once uh, some wag said, what's your son doing with a Welsh team? He picked up the French stick and went for him. <laughs> um, you know, everybody's someone's little boy, I suppose. You know, everybody's someone's son. And, so it was tough for them to uh, deal with the losses at times, you know. And actually, if you just say, read the good bits, that's not right either. You know, you're never as good as the, the papers say when you win. You're never as bad as the papers say when you lose. So it's it's keeping that perspective. And I suppose I was very fortunate. My wife always kept me, you know, pretty grounded and back down to earth and wasn't as involved as she could have been because we needed that perspective on life. Mm-hmm. So it put a balance on your life. Yeah. Um, yeah, we lost a game. And it seems as if someone has died. Mm-hmm. But the reality is no one has died. And probably having that healthy perspective is, is very useful, isn't it, in terms of being able to, to go again and, and perform again rather than it to weigh you down and, and the team. 
Yeah, I know. And one of the toughest things for modern professional coaches, David, is uh, we're measured on results. And um, I, I hope you won't mind me saying, but, you know, Stuart Lancaster w would feel that he is the, um, the only coach of a host Rugby World Cup nation not to coach the team to get out of the pool stages. So he's almost labelled as that. I actually think he's labelled as a terrific husband, a fantastic father, a great son, uh, 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 you know, really loving son to his parents. Um, but we are not seen in those light as humans, are we, as people? We're classed as results. You only won 50% of your games or 70% of your games or 20% of your games. <laughs> Um, rather than human people. How, do, how do we do? Can we change that? Should we change that? I, I, I think it is difficult to change because owners, chief execs, um, boards of sports organizations have greater expectations perhaps than the reality of their investment. Um, it's easy to change one person as the head coach rather than 15 players, 11 players, or, or what have you. So um, there's um, a conveyor belt of coaches. You know, there are a limited number of jobs at that level, at full-time level. Uh, I think the career is, is shorter yeah. um, as a result of that. It, it, there is a credibility hump that you've got to get over in order to get the next job. Otherwise, the second job is really tough. We are impatient uh, and, and want the opportunity before perhaps we've built our, our knowledge, our understanding, our experiences, our perspective in order to deal with those, those pressures. Um, we seem to import 50-year-old foreign coaches while we need to develop 50-year-old Welsh head coaches or English coaches, you know, our, our coaches. Homegrown coaches, yeah. Um, so I, it's, it's a real challenge when those making the appointments, I think, are less informed than perhaps our coach, our coach developing fraternity. Uh, I wonder if they really know what they, is it too reactive? Is it just the next name? Is it just the foreign import? I, I, I'm generalizing a little bit too mm. much there. But Why do we go abroad so much? Or, or what is wrong with the, our system then in terms of recruiting from within? I, I think certainly, probably in, in football and rugby in particular, there is more of a club-based system in England uh, and club-based system in France, while the regional-based systems in the Southern Hemisphere and some other parts of Europe are in more control of those appointments. So it becomes a, a club owner, a club committee a decision. And um, I, I also think, yeah, often, if a, a, a chief exec appoints a foreign coach and the foreign coach fails in the club, 
then the foreign coach has failed. If the chief exec promotes the academy coach or someone from within and that coach fails, I don't know if the perception is, hang on, you appointed him. You know, it's your failure, your responsibility. Again, I've got no substance for that at all, but I wonder whether there is something. Yeah, and you lead me on to thinking there, Kevin, also about the concept between that idea of winning versus development as well. And, you know, having worked throughout the whole education and coaching pathway and system, I'm curious to hear your views on the, the sort of the tension between the idea of, you know, coaching to have to win and coaching as a means of developing people and players. How have you experienced all of that? Yeah, it, 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 it is a, a, a tough balance. I, I think I made a lot of changes when I took over as national coach and, and started with young players. So I was... Um, planning for winning in the future. Mm-hmm. The future never comes unless you win in the short term. So this balance of winning in the short term enough that you can plan and make the changes for the longer term and hopefully be more successful. But that's really quite, quite hard to do. Um, so the balance between winning and development is a, a tough one to, to balance. Even harder in the performance pathway, say, where every time in the England rugby performance pathway, pathway and England under 18, under 20, and 17 went out to play the game, they went out to win the game. Of course they did. That's the purpose of the game. That's why we, we, That's keep why we play it. <laughs> That's why we keep the score is to see who won at the end. Yeah. But the longer term measure and also in the development pathway, is about the progression and development and the added value that, and experiences that we can give to those players who can win World Cup, Six Nations Championships for Wales or, or, or England for the country in the future. And so there is a, a balance between it, uh, which, is, which is hard to, to come by. So in... in um, performance appraisal, we used to, in the pathway coaches, have some competition goals. Uh, England under 20 should be, with their resources, top two in the Six Nations, top four in the Junior World Cup every year. Should be with our resources. Yeah? Um, to do that, you've got to be the Southern Hemisphere team, you've got to do really well. Um, we want to win every, everyone. Yeah. The key part is that was a, a performance competition goal. Then there was a development goal. What added value, which is harder to measure, of course, isn't it? Can we, can we add to players and their progression and their understanding and their individual skill development in our collective team environment so that they move on to the next level of, of the pathway? And so on. So there'd be measures with that uh, uh, as well, and, but but one is more objective than the other, mm-hmm. and we like objective measures. Uh, I'm curious, I guess, to have things changed. Do you think over time have they got harder 
is the pressure more intense for the developers of people and you know the head coaches or or not yeah, I, I think it is because of having having time together so a coaching team that comes together you think of the successful clubs they have some longevity with their coaching groups mm. and and even in the past they've had longevity in in their coaching coaching groups um, in rugby saracen's coaching group uh, despite their issues uh, exeter coaching group are have had time they know each other yeah, they understand each other they've there's a, there's an alignment in philosophy and there's a challenge and a, a disagreement which is uh, really hot even conflict at times because of the trust that's been created that's the beauty of it that's what longevity gives you rather than a disagreement off his head change the coach again you know so rugby is getting a little bit like football is too much change of the head coach so quickly and that's your owners your your, your boards um changing much having to change perhaps because of, of, of results and um and and it's the old adage the coach gets the blame when the team loses yeah and the players get the praise when the team wins which is probably as it should be as well well, you talk there about longevity being a key ingredient for um, for successful teams. Would you say there are any other key ingredients that would create a really successful, say, learning environment? Because I guess that's what it is, isn't it? We're trying to create an environment where people can learn to perform at their best. In your experiences, what are the key two or three things would you say are really helpful or even uh, learning crucial? Learning environments are interesting and... and having the privilege to go into different clubs yeah. in, uh, sports environments you get a feel for the environment you know this word culture you know this is how they do things around you this is what it feels like sounds like looks like um and for me is it is the environment one of performance because we're in a performance game, a results game. Are we striving to improve performance? Is it a learning environment? Are players, staff, stimulating, challenged, encouraged to learn, to get better, that, that philosophy of continuous improvement? And is it enjoyable? Is it fun? Why is enjoyable important, Kevin? Not fun, ha ha ha, necessarily, but enjoyable. I remember um, a ten-year-old uh, rugby player uh, being asked, "Why do you play the game?" I love it. I love it on Sunday morning because we roll around in the mud, we have some fun with my friends, and we have a burger in the club after. Great. The eighteen-year-old academy player. Ah, I, I love the you know, we're driven. My my mates. In the, in the squad, in the academy, we are striving to be the best we can. We, we enjoy being together. We enjoy, it's hard work, but we go through. And then they ask um, uh, Captain of Wales Rugby Team, why do you play? We love being together. I love coming together and being with the world squad. It, it, it's about enjoyment, not fun, ha ha, necessarily, yeah. 
But can we create uh, an environment that is performance, results, standards, uh, excellence driven, driven for learning, I'm improving, I'm getting better, I'm hungry to learn, and this is enjoyable to be in this environment. Now, uh, that's a good learning environment for me. And my sense is that we can, from what you're saying, you can have those three kind of key components come together? Yeah, and, and the other sort of, I suppose, model in my head would be that clarity of, of purpose of what we're trying to achieve. And often it's a question I often ask coaches, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of that drill? What's the purpose of the practice? What's the purpose of that game? What's the purpose of that session? What's the purpose of the academy? What's the purpose of the club? I'm getting some clarity and alignment about almost a beyond winning purpose where winning is a byproduct of striving towards something greater perhaps. What roles and responsibilities and people will help us achieve that purpose are aligned, connected, identify with, with the purpose that we can pull together and, and that they can fulfill their role to achieve the purpose, but support each other in a more interconnected way to achieve the purpose. Uh, thirdly, how, how do we operate? How do we make decisions? How do we communicate? What are our processes? What is our, our, how do we organize things? How do we plan the week? How do we structure the week to allow those roles and responsibilities, those people to do the job to achieve the purpose. All underpinned by this is how we treat people around here. This is the, an environment of respect, of openness, of honesty, of calling people out if they don't reflect the values of the organization, of celebrating them when they do, uh, of challenging without blame, without threat and openness uh, you know that that's why i think teams go to culture and values and those sort of things first okay how do we do it to move that forward do you think to make that come to life and and probably a second thought would be and where have you experienced that or where do you notice it coming to life because lots of people might hear right that's brilliant we want a piece of that but how do we achieve it? Or who could we go and learn from? Not copy, but who could we learn from? Well, I, I, go, back to, I go back to Saracens and Exeter. Both have, I think, terrific, um, positive, high-performance environments. Uh, but they do it differently. There is some longevity with the coaching management group. There is change. There is change in the playing group. Uh, what and how they do things may be slightly different as well. Um, experiencing those, I mean, implementing it is really tough. You know, how do we do it isn't easy. I, I, I often think that coaches need some clarity about what, how, and why they do things the way they do. 
So what's your coaching philosophy? What's your playing philosophy? Uh, what's your coaching approach? Um, can you describe it? Can you uh, articulate it? Can you sell it and get buy-in to get everybody pulling in that direction? You know? um, can we still value diversity, challenge in there to, to, to make us think again, uh, to take it further? Um, again, simple to say, but not easy to put into operation with 40 different personalities of individual players in your squad, 20 management staff coaching team, you know, sport, sport science and what have you, a board to report to and um, manage upwards and influence or connect with, a spectator fan base to connect with, it's quite complex, um, simple, as I said, high-performing teams, but not easy to implement. And, and then moving that on, Kevin, and I love the way you've articulated it, because I think that's, that's what we're all striving for, is to put our flavour into that model and bring it to life. And I also really appreciate your sense of that actually there is no one way of doing this it's it's you know how they do it at saracens is different to exeter and so forth but going forward given the the challenges that we've faced in the past but might likely face in the future what 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 are the big challenges or obstacles do you envisage sport not just rugby but in in the sport world going forward oh, gosh Coaching is, a, is about problem solving, isn't it? Uh, it it's about, I, I say the difference between the head coach and the assistant coach. The head coach says yes or no. The assistant coach offers, offers solutions. Should we do this on Saturday against that opposition? Should we do this? Should we change this? And the head coach makes a decision, yes, no. So there's decision making and problem solving. Um, that is an obstacle yeah. you know there's always a challenge dealing with winning and sustaining winning sustaining momentum um regaining you know a, 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 turning a losing streak around yeah uh, regaining some kind of momentum these challenges obstacles as a, as a, as a you know what sort of obstacles there's obstacles of uh, finance resource and all of those things but those are constraints that you have to work with yeah. who's who's the best coach in the league is it the one who wins the league because he's got the best squad uh, you know the most players most talented players is it the least talented squad where the coach has come second from last yeah. so he's actually created something which is greater than the sum of the individual parts now i think that is effective coaching if we can create something which is greater than the individual talented parts that we have um, now liverpool are doing some something this season. They've created an environment, and probably with the coach's influence, that 
environment, that collective, that alignment. Uh, they've got some terrific individual yeah. talented parts uh, as well, you know. Um, so there is something there that would be interesting to, to learn about. I mean. you, you, you raise a lovely question again around what is success for me, isn't it? Because is success winning at the top? Or as you say, um, kind of nearly punching above your weight or your expectations, isn't it? And I, there used to be some league tables, didn't there, of, of teams with um, position versus um, finances, wasn't it? And, uh, and actually seeing who, who was scored highest with the least finance kind of was the successful team. And I just think that's a lovely um, principle. And again, for, for aspiring coaches, you know, there's not that many jobs out there. Everyone's trying to be, you know, wants to be the national team coach or the, the first team coach. But I also think it's a great question to put out to, to those people listening to really consider, you know, what does success mean and look like for you? Because actually being a secondary school rugby coach, you know, you might not win the league, but if you can create one or two players that move on to, you know, to the next level, wow, that's an amazing achievement. You know, and and clarify the purpose and put it in perspective. You know, when a coach says to me, I want to coach, I want to be the next England coach, I would never burst a bubble. There's right. a reality, isn't it? You know, there's actually, you're just coaching the under-12s at the moment. But, <laughs> um, so what's the first thing you've got to do to get on that, in that direction? knowing that the direction may change. So I, I think it's important to dream, you know, and dream big. Uh, there is a reality and there's a sense of perseverance and perspective to move. And um, the, the path to that job isn't straight, you know, and, and that, dream goal may, that dream job may change in a year or two years, five years time, uh, depending on how, uh, how you navigate through a minefield of, of learning and life. Um, but I, I, I think it is, it's important to dream big as, as well, strive for it. Well, Kevin, when you say dream big, I'm a big supporter of that. You know, if you, if you don't dream big, you're always going to potentially under, underplay yourself. Um, a question I'm interested to just ask you though is that your style and your approach you mentioned earlier on is quite um relational you know in terms of the importance of having relationships and showing uh, an empathy with the people and developing people as opposed to just players um and i i'm really curious around that tension between some head coaches or senior managers in organizations that need to feel that they're they're there which are very outcome and results driven and, and push very hard and i'm curious a little bit around you know can successful leaders coaches managers be um relationship focused as opposed to just outcome and task focused what's your thoughts yeah I, and i think that is the balance isn't it if you're too task focused you don't achieve the task, the goal that you've set, because you don't take the people with you. Right. Because perhaps you don't care enough about the people. Now, I know that I am more people-focused and sometimes won't achieve the goal or the task because I care too much about the people. So I, I think that balance of being task-focused and people-focused and trying to get that balance again is easy to say simple but not easy to achieve especially when we're talking about so many different personalities and knowing yourself as you do 
what did you do to try and help you address that balance to assure that you took the people and were successful with with the task i wish i'd be more successful with the task really <laughs> <laughs> i wish i'd won more games <laughs> um it, it's understanding that you have to invest in say my learning is coach the person first and the player will develop as a result of being a better person i i i still believe in that so i i would i am still people focused however i know that the measure will be results and, and those results we are task focused those outcomes so we, we have to get that balance the other thing about data analytics and analysis in sport which can be not, not everything that's measured by so much analysis nowadays is important. Not everything that's important can be measured. So there's that, again, that balance is a skill of the coach is interpreting analysis into coaching and performance improvement. Because the science side, you know, uh, Coaching is about the craft, the art, and the science, isn't it? And sometimes coaches are going to be better at the science, and scientists are going to be better at the, the, art, at the art of it. I'm not sure I've answered your question. No, no, you, you have. You've given a real sense of what's going on there. And, and actually, I'm hearing from you that actually it is a balance, that actually being just task-focused won't only be successful again I, I picked up here some some coaches that i talk to and individuals in businesses that i talk to say you know i have to be very hard nosed very focused on the task to get the job done because i want to be the next chief exec and i hear very strongly from what you're saying is you know you need to take the people with you otherwise you won't achieve it or it'll fall down you know yeah. and and that's what's really important for me because playing it here i'm a strong believer is that you know you can be successful by taking the people with you not just by getting the job done, you know, and, but I, I hear you from your experiences and your learnings that it's actually really knowing what your preference is here and being aware of it to make sure you get the right balance along the way, because you might need to turn one aspect up, i.e. the task, if you're not that task focused, the more people, or you might need to turn up the more people focus if you're solely task driven. And, and I'm a, a bit of a reflector. So I had to understand that and hit the button to send. Otherwise, I'll wait too long and miss the moment. Most people, we say, sleep on it, don't they, before you hit the button and send the email. Yeah. So it's that level of, and, and you've mentioned it a few times now, David, is self-awareness. So self-awareness, self-management, self-coaching, I would call it, um, is really important as is awareness of others in order to manage yourself to coach yourself to control your emotions to have a perspective to balance task and people focus or what have you yourself uh, from that self to manage your emotions in the heat of that battle or when you're interviewed straight after a loss or a win or, or, or what have you to understand others, to be aware of others, 
to manage others, because that's where we got to get to, isn't it? That that management, that coaching of others to help them flourish, to be the best they can be. And it's about helping people flourish to achieve their goals, which will help the team achieve the team goals, the club goals, and, and trying to align all that. Again, simple to say, not easy to do. Kevin, was there a moment before before we move into the kind of some quick fire questions? Was there a moment in your career where you recognised that you were beginning to self coach, or that self coaching and that self awareness and self management was an important attribute that you required, or is that something you've just built on and gravitated and grown over time? It's probably probably been a more gradual process, David. But certainly, one of my questions often to a coach in a coach development course conference forum would be, um, "What's the key skill or quality of a coach?" And um, in my head, my learning around emotional intelligence which is self-awareness awareness of others self-management and so on uh seemed to be the key skill of the coach of course technical tactical knowledge is vital um, but that ability to um, influence others to be emotionally aware which is the arm around the shoulder the kick up the backside and you know saying the Showing anger at half time because it's the right thing to do at that moment. Can't do it all the time, but and then turning around and almost smiling to yourself in that you still have to be authentic. But coaching is also creating a resourceful state at a moment that will impact and transfer to your players and your team to get the effect that you want. So if I want to be calm and controlled, then my body language. The tone of my voice. If I want to be aggressive, I want energy, my body language, my tone of my voice. So we have to create a state. Because was it Wenger's, uh, was it Wenger who said uh, the face of the coach reflects the mood of the team? Right. You know, it's it's connected. So let's be aware as coaches that we can have that effect. We still have to be true to ourselves. We still have to be authentic in our leadership of the team, in our coaching. But we have to create a state that transfers to the players to get a reaction that influences to improve performance after halftime, before the game, the end of the game. You pick up on a thought of mine, which is very much around the importance of a not not just a coach, but as a people developer, which you know is the sole role you played throughout your career, whether it be a PE teacher, a, a head coach, or whatever. You've been developer of people. Is the importance of connection there? You know, as as you're talking to me there, I'm just thinking all of this is about changing your state to ensure a, a solid and a purposeful connection with others to help them achieve a goal. And I, you know, again probably a theme from our discussion today is that it's it's easy to say but hard to do you know and that seems to be something that's dropping out quite quite a lot here but without knowing it and thinking about it and being conscious of it, it it's it's near on impossible I guess but the fact we're beginning to articulate it and therefore encourage others to really think about it dig a little bit deeper and make sense of it then hopefully it becomes that little bit easier 
yeah, yeah. And, and that's like raising awareness, isn't it? And uh, I think I mentioned to you previously that look, I'm not an academic, I'm not a theorist, I'm a practitioner. In essence, a coach, whether you're in a college, a coach developer, or uh, I, I don't like the word mentor, critical thinking friend. It's it's to help people be the best they can be, and uh, sharing experiences, sharing uh, knowledge, or whatever. Uh, I, I believe in share and grow. So um, I think it's it's um, it's it's about helping someone be the best they possibly can be. And it depends, isn't it? It's different. It's different. It's, it, it depends uh, on the context, the situation, the person, and it changes. And that ability to adapt as a coach, I think, is a key skill through your emotional awareness. Well, Kevin, what, what we've definitely done here today on the podcast is shared a lot. And there's, there's huge amounts of pearls of wisdom and little nuggets in there, which I hope that those that are listening can just take one or two things away just to help them on their journey, whether it be as a coach or an athlete or, you know, a business leader or, or even a parent, you know, because I think one of our greatest jobs where I know for myself, I use my coaching skills is with my children and those around me in terms of really helping them be the very best version of themselves. So what I'd like to now do is just lead us into a final kind of section where I'm going to throw a few can, questions. Can I, sorry, David, can I, before you do that? Yeah, just, sure. There's no right or wrong way. And I'm not saying my way is the right way. I'm saying I'm happy to share yeah. with what I think works for me based on my personality, my experience. I think coaches, if we use right and wrong, players don't want to be wrong. They don't volunteer if they think they're going to be wrong. If we can use good or not so good, that's a good answer. That's a good decision. That was a good execution of that kick or scrum or whatever it is. That wasn't so good. How could we make that better? Right and wrong is too black and white. And often we use that. And, and it, I think players don't want to get it wrong. But they want to do it better. And, and if we can use that language, and, that, and what I'm saying is, my way isn't the right way or a wrong way. It could be a good way or a not so good way, depending on who you are and what you take from it. I'm happy to share it. So, um, it, you know, that's, that's been a, a pleasure. No, you're going to grill me again. Right? Well, and you actually play on a really important aspect for me, and it's become even more so over the last probably year or so, is the, the importance of the language we use. You know, and you're really highlighting that, that the, the subtleties of one or two different words can make a very big difference in terms of how we connect with individuals or help them move forward. And, you know, I really like that language there that you've used. And interestingly enough, um, on a previous podcast, a gentleman shared a book about leadership is language and about the, the language we use is really purposeful. You know, so, Marquet, yeah. yeah, David Marquet. And, and again, I think as coaches, people, developers, whatever we call them, those that are helping others maximize who they are and how we relate to them, we need to be conscious of our language because we can turn somebody off very easily. And actually, we can help somebody really flower and glow and, and, and flourish very easily as well. So you make a really, really great as, point. As coaches, we're notorious for looking at what players can't do rather than what they can do let's uh you know celebrate people's strengths really on that note can i take us to um asking you a little bit around um 
kind of some books or some reading that you've recently done or in the past that have really uh, had a big impact on you and your your direction which might you know again spark an interest in one of our listeners so you mentioned david marquet and his first book is turn the ship around which is about leadership in the in the in the submarine in, in the navy his second book uh, is about leadership is language so that's really interesting i i think the coach is a leader so I'm interested in 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 leadership, uh, a, a legacy. Many people would know James Kerr's book, Legacy, but Legacy is 15 leadership lessons from the All Blacks. So it's about leadership development as well. Um, I like. Um, there's another good book uh, by Richard Heitner called Consigliere. And Consigliere is the Mafia's number two. And uh, Richard Heitner was number two in a, a big company, Saatchi and Saatchi, I think it was. Um, became number one in, a, in another company. Realized he was better suited and had more influence as being number two. So went back to being number two. So it's about leading from the shadows. It's not necessarily about being the head coach. The director of rugby, whatever it is, it's about the influence as a leader from the shadows. And I think Consigliere is a good book. I like Rick Charlesworth's books. Rick Charlesworth was the uh, Australian uh, hockey coach that won the 96 Olympics. And then again in 2000. And the second book he did, I think, is called Staying at the Top. And that's Achieving Success and sustaining success. What do you do to change things, freshen things, identify players that can do it again? His other, uh, his other, he's written a new book actually, it's not too good I think, but uh, his best book is Shakespeare the Coach. Have you come across Shakespeare the Coach? Yeah. You're the first person that's ever mentioned it on the podcast though, so that's great because I have come upon it and I know that it's a really uh, uh, kind of, a book that was before its time, I think, in many ways. I know it's typical of Charlesworth and how he thinks. You know, he was a doctor, a politician, a, a successful coach. Um, uh, taking Shakespeare, Shakespeare's quotes and language and um, turning them into influencing coaching and sport. It's terrific. I, uh, when I left the RFU, I gave a few coaches the, a copy of it as a, as a little bit of light reading. But it, it, it's uh, very interesting. Um, I liked, and I would say, Gareth Thomas has written his autobiography. And Gareth has had well-documented um, issues in his life. Mm. And I wish I had known what was going on when I was coaching him. So it was a terrific insight for me about the mental state, mental focus of, of players. Although it's an autobiography, it had meaning for me. And it tells you a little bit more about the, the turmoil, the, the, the mental struggles, as well as the physical struggles that players go through. Uh, Sam Warburton has recently wrote, uh, written a book as well about all his autobiography, but about his injuries. And the last one, sorry, la- uh, one no, this more. Is, this is great. It's given a great insight. Yeah, a book called The Second Curve by Charles Handy. And that's about the sigmoid curve, which is about, um, you know, 
before uh, your performance wanes, make the change and kick on. Go back, go on again. Yeah, take go a step on again. On again. Yeah. And it's like uh, second curve thinking. So when I retired, it was a great book for me to think, what next? You know, what do you do next? Life yeah. doesn't stop. You kick on. Mm. Uh, so it's about second curve thinking, really. Sorry, I read too many books there. No, well, you give a great insight. You've opened up so many avenues because I'd love to know a little bit about, you know, with the, the likes of Gareth and Sam Warburton and those insights, what you would have done differently had you known. And the sigmoid curve, I think, is just fantastic because, again, in, in all of our lives, whether we're, whether we're 20, 25, 30, retiring or whatever, there's always a, that little plateau where we have to go again, isn't there? So very relevant for the sport world as well as the corporate world isn't it in terms of careers and what we have to step on so i think it's a and, and that, you know no regrets wish i could have done it things better at times be more successful one more games or whatever but no regrets you've got to move on you can't can't change that can control can't control all of that level of thinking um we go on and what's what's going to happen next and can we deal and plan plan for um uh, that constant improvement. Yeah. A couple more questions then, Kevin. One of them would be for me is, you know, you've come through a, a fantastic career in sport and we talked about preparing people to be the best versions of themselves. How do you mentally and physically prepare yourself to be the best that you can be? Um, I suppose it's sometimes you've got to anchor on. What I do sometimes um, is... I, I think I was the 11th Welsh national coach. So I think there's probably been about 16 or 18. So uh, I anchor on to think no one in this audience that I'm quaking and my knees are knocking because I've got to speak for 10 minutes or whatever in this audience of a thousand people or, or something, something talking to you i was getting uh, you know quite nervous really uh, you know, at the start and thinking well look i was the 11th national coach let me anchor on to not many other people have done that believe in yourself just share uh, and, and be who you are really. so sometimes i think you've got to anchor on to something that keeps you grounded uh, keeps builds your belief and self-confidence yeah it's a lovely one isn't it because no one's ever walked in your shoes have they <laughs> you know and that's the kind of the idea, isn't it? No. no, I'm sure lots of people, and, and I guess largely part, part of the, you know, the concept around telling sports stories is that there's so many people would love to have a career and an involvement and an engagement in sport like you've had and many others, you know, and hopefully by sharing some of these experiences might really inspire and engage and give people, uh, you know, hope as to how they might actually progress and perform and get engaged in the sport world because there's so much... There's so many gems, as I've said before, and so much value and learning we can take out of the involvement you've had and, and I've had, you know, and that's why I'm so passionate about the sport world. I suppose I'm fortunate in that sport has been, as a PE teacher, as a coach, as a coach developer, has been central to, to my life. And the game went professional, rugby went professional in 1995, and I got appointed in November 95 as the first national coach of Wales in the professional era. And I've been fortunate until I retired in 2016 uh, to have worked and been paid in professional rugby, which has been 
a real honor and a, and a privilege. And uh, even though I was a Welshman working for the RFU in England. <laughs> How was that, Kevin? What was that like? <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, it was always the question, you know, who do you support and what have you? Well, I'm Welsh. I can't help it. You can, so, you can tell by my accent, can't you? <laughs> And nor um, should, you, should, should you help it, you know, why not be it, yeah. I, I'm Welsh and I'm proud of it and I'm proud of the passion and the identity and the belonging yeah. and our love of, of my game as well. Um, but I, I'm also, I hope, professional. Yeah. And so when I was coaching Wales and on that side of the fence, I wanted Wales to win. Yeah. When I was working for the RFU, and on that side of the fence, I want the RFU to win. Because in a sense, it's a reflection on the professional job that you're doing. That you're doing, yeah. Um, now that I'm independent, I want uh, the coach to be the best coach you possibly can be. <laughs> <laughs> you want the game to be the winner on this one, I <laughs> know. So it, it's uh, yeah, not easy, but um, it's an interesting. So I got uh, RFU. Uh, Ahead of their time in 2002, they advertised for a head of elite coach development, the first job in any sport to invest in helping our best coaches get better. So I got interviewed, and I, a couple of years earlier, I was coaching against Clive Woodburn, Frank Cotton, um, Chris Spice, the performance director, someone from Sport England. So I got interviewed for this job as head of elite coach development at the RFU. And uh, the any questions type of question at the end was, I, I said to them, how do you know if, I'd be, if I got the job, how do you know if I was doing a good job? What does success look like? Is yeah. You asked them that question. I asked them, what would it, how would you know if I was doing a good job, if, if I was successful in, in getting it? And it's always a good question, isn't it? You know, what does success look like to you? Which is a question you use a lot with your coaches, I'm sure. And, and Chris Bice, the performance director, said, if the coaches feel cared for and well looked after and challenged and supported in their learning to improve, that will be it. How you measure that is another thing. But it was a great answer. And, and I suppose that's what, we're about in coach development. That's what you and I are passionate about is caring for our coaches to challenge them, support them to get better. Uh, let me throw a different question at you then, Kevin. In terms of your career, which two or three people, and I know this is maybe a, a very difficult question given you know, the length of your career and actually the involvement you've had um, and, and being a learner yourself, but who's really impacted on you and who stands out as being pivotal, would you say? Uh, I, I knew you were going to ask me this, David. I've got six <laughs> people here. <laughs> no, well, that, that, that's fine, because I think these are really important people. Right, let me uh, give you this one. First one, growing up in Neath, watching Neath, uh, Neath had a player called Di Morris. Yeah. Di Morris was um, number eight for Neath, number six for Wales. He was a miner from Rickos in the Neath Valley, hard as nails, hewn out of Welsh anthracite, <laughs> perpetual motion, always in the right place at the right time. Every time Gareth Edwards scored a try for Wales, who was on his shoulder, who was 
uh, in constant support, die, die Moritz. So much so, they called him the shadow. <laughs> the most humble, um, uh, 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 unpretentious, modest uh, person you'd ever wish to meet. My first game for me was as number eight, so I wore his shirt. Oh. Uh, so I could have I could have retired. Retired there. there. <laughs> I wore Di Boris's shirt. Uh, my second game for me, I wasn't good enough in number eight. They brought Di back, and they, I got selected at number six. So I played with him. With him, so oh, I, even better. <laughs> but the lesson there is, uh, you know, what a role model for me. Yeah. As a young, you know, dreams of rugby playing, what a role model he was. Now. My teacher in school, I talked about Neath Grammar School, Ron Trimnell, hard work, discipline, commitment to the team was what I learned there. He, he was uh, a bit of a taskmaster. I, I mentioned Johnny Hunter, Northern Irishman at Borough Road College, passion, enthusiasm, hunger for the game, uh, um, inspirational in its, uh, uh, the magic of the game. John Dawes, captain of the 71 Lions, was um, director of rugby for the Welsh Rugby Union when I was uh, still teaching and starting coaching. And he gave me the opportunity to coach Wales under 20 for the first time. So opportunity and giving people opportunity is really important. He started me on my career. So giving opportunity, his other phrase was, it's only a game, there's a perspective. Mm -hmm. It's only a game, win or lose. It's only a game was his saying. Of course, it's livelihoods now, isn't it? Yeah, it's more than a game now, isn't it, it seems. At the same time, when I was developing as a coach, there was a coach developer who eventually became the manager of the Welsh team um, during Graham Henry's uh, coaching regime. And his name was Trevor James. And he was a coach developer, and I learned a lot. He, he was an art teacher originally, another teacher. Another teacher, brilliant. <laughs> but I learned about creativity, the importance of creativity in your coaching, the, uh, um, the importance of uh, individuality, the importance of metaphor and meaning and learning, meaning different things to different people, which was great. Um, we called him Clever Trevor, unfortunately. <laughs> Clever Trevor. Uh, inspirational guy. And, and the last person I, I will mention, uh, sadly passed away, but someone who, um, um, who was almost sort of by my side for about 40, 40 years in, in playing and, and coaching was uh, a guy called Keith Lyons, who was uh, almost the founder of notational analysis started, uh, wrote the first book on video analysis in, in the 70s, um, uh, became head of performance analysis at the Walsh Rugby Union, created a performance analysis center at Cardiff University, where all the analysts used to come out of, headhunted by the Australian Institute of Sport to head up performance analysis there. So he studied teacher, coach, player behavior. And he was um, the most caring, supportive, critical thinking friend was his approach, not mental. Mm. Alongside you, walked alongside you, 
are almost popped up when you're lost, you know, at the toughest yeah, yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And his, I'll leave you with a saying, and his saying was, uh, we all live lives of quiet desperation. And to be with someone, supporting them in desperate times, usually when you've lost, you know, he was a terrific uh, support for me at that time. It's amazing stuff. And Kevin, what, what's really struck me, though, is also the, the importance of key people on your journey through your career and how they've influenced you along the way and, and actually having the, the foresight and the insight that you have to recognizing how they've each impacted you is just amazing. And, you know, and, and I love that question just because it, we've all got these and I just want some of our listeners to also think a little bit around who are they for them? Who are the key people that have been through? Why, David? And, and why? Absolutely. It's the why, and, and it's a question. You know, as you can see, I, I thought about it, and it's a question yeah. we would ask our yeah. young couple: Who influenced you, and yeah. why? And of course, parents are great influence. You know, yeah. dad, my dad, come and watch, but don't shout, dad. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, but always there, always in the background always there to support win or lose uh, with real pride um, so it's important that people understand who, who and, why. and why i've got two last questions for you given what we just said about the importance of different people is there anybody in your mind whose kind of sports story you would be kind of interested to know a little bit more about and and I, and I appreciate you know a lot about lots of different people in your world but anybody that still intrigues you or or you feel that our listeners might really value hearing somebody else's story in a bit more depth somebody that you maybe know oh gosh it's another story in my experience of going to South Africa but um but what did Nelson Mandela say? Uh, sport has the power to change the world. Change people's it, lives in the world, yeah. I mean, I, wouldn't it be great to, I, I know his, his quotes are um, well documented, but his interpretation of sport, the power of sport, his experience or not experience uh, of it, uh, would be, I, I, and I suppose that that film uh, Invictus is the film about the '95 World Cup. So, what about the new captain of South Africa who won the World Cup in 2019? Yeah, uh, Saya Kalozi. Yeah, what a story he might have oh. with his upbringing and the influence of of sports on him. You press a real point for me, though, there, Kevin. Born and brought up in South Africa as well, and hearing that story, that one would really resonate with me, just understanding the impact of both sport, but also the apartheid regime and everything that's been going on there and the links to what Mandela did back then, all in the, all in the, uh, the kind of the, the catch-all of rugby as well. It's just kind of an amazing um, pot to maybe explore. So who knows? Let's, let's hope one day we can find out a little bit more about that. And my final question is, is, is there a saying or a, 
a motto which you've really grown to really support you and guide you through all of your career? Because you've shared such a lot of, and lots of lo lovely little sayings from other people as well. But is there anything that you just sit with that just stays with you to keep you grounded and motivated and driving forward in the way that you have done? Um, the simple answer is I end my emails now with uh, keep coaching, keep learning. So where it's come from is um, when I retired, uh, because I got asked to do some consultancy work back with the RFU, with the WRU, a bit of work with Premier League football, as you do, David, some other sports, I, I just set up uh, a company called TLC Limited. And as you know, TLC stands for Tender Loving Care in most people's eyes but it stands for teaching learning and coaching because um, my wife was a head teacher and is a, a independent schools inspector as well so she inspects the quality of teaching and learning and I said what are you looking for because I look at the quality of coaching and learning <laughs> and she says look at schools I look to see if the kids are engaged are they sitting forward? Are they engaged in the activity? Are they inspired? Are they cared for by the teacher? Is the teacher passionate about engaging the children and their learning? And uh, I think players respond to coaches who care about them, who engage, who are passionate, who are inspiring. So uh, the company is called TLC Limited. Teaching Coaching Limited, uh, it makes no money at all, in fact. Uh, in fact, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the concept behind it is what we stand for. So usually I sign off my email by saying, keep coaching and keep learning, because we actually learn in this lockdown period what learning we've had, but actually we learn from doing it. And there is no substitute for coaching to develop our learning as long as we reflect, uh, think how we can do it better. Well, what, what, keep, keep, keep coaching and keep learning. Well, once again, Kevin, the way you've articulated that and shared it for me is, is hugely powerful and gives a real sense of, of, of the story you've told today. So, you know, in terms of, a theme of teaching, coaching and learning coming well through everything that we've spoken about and what's really navigated your journey, but also in the, in the manner by which you've shared what you've shared as well in terms of that tender loving care. And, and, and I say that really solidly actually, because I feel like that, you know, it's not just what we do in coaching. It's also how we do it and how we help and how we make people feel. And actually, your style and approach for me today has just been about a genuine sharing to help other people grow. So I really wanted to thank you for, for doing that. And I, and I know you, you often feel that you didn't have much to share, but if we put one or two things out there and one or two people pick something up and go with it, I, I'd be a happy person because once again, sport is the avenue. You're sharing your stories and it's what other people pick up and take from it. And I'm pretty, pretty sure that there's a lot of people will pick up a lot of the gems and we'll also have really valued hearing your journey and your experience. So once again, thank you ever so much for, for sharing that. And, and Kevin, should anybody want to um, 
find out a little bit more about what you're doing. And I appreciate that you're, you're retired now and you know, you're doing little bits of work here and there. Can they make contact with you through teach coaching and learning, you know, through TLC? Oh, I've got no website or anything like that, uh, you know, through you. If you, uh, if they contact you and you pass my uh, contact details, I'm happy for that. It's, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I'm not that uh, uh, technologically minded to create a website or anything. Well, and we, don't, and we don't need to because it's actually, as you say, it's the, the, the difference is in, is in the doing, isn't it? And it's the relationships that we've built and also that you've got. And, and it's very solid that. So what, what I'll do, should anybody wish to find out a little bit more and make contact you, with you, then they can awesome. come, delighted to come back through me and we'll do that. But on that note, it only leaves me just to say, again, once a huge thank you for your time and energy. Um, and, you know, let's hope things keep moving forward. The, the Welsh rugby team, when we get back to playing, are successful. Um, and, and all the coaches that you work with, I'm sure will be successful given what you've said. So, Kevin, thank you for today. Really appreciate it. David, it's been a, a great honour and a privilege and uh, a bit embarrassing at times, really. But uh, uh, all I can say is uh, thank you very much for the work you do. But keep coaching and keep learning. What a fantastic conversation that was with Kevin. I could go on listening and talking with him all day as he keeps offering little gems of insight and wisdom. I was particularly drawn to his connections with his upbringing in Wales and how he articulated the many people that impacted and influenced his life and career in rugby. For me, he had a very gentle way of sharing his experience of a hard and performance-driven environment when both performance and people mattered. I also love the way he described the importance of continually learning and how he continues to demonstrate this to this very day. As with previous podcasts, I would like to pose a couple of questions based on my reflections. I hope they may be of help to you. Kevin asked or raised many questions himself, but I'd like you to think about the following. What is the purpose of what you are doing? The following question would be, who are the key people who have influenced you in your life and why? Please take some time to consider these questions challenge yourself to continually learn and develop as Kevin did. As always, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Please let me have your feedback so I can continue to learn and a review on Apple Podcast is always massively appreciated. Before I sign off, I just wanted to let you know we have some really exciting developments over the coming weeks and months with some sports stories resources being available and some more amazing guests sharing their stories. So it just leaves me to wish you a great week. Look after yourself. And I look forward to having you with me, Dave Levine, next week on the Sports Stories podcast.